but he's very solid. He tries to bumbo. When we get next year, early next year, we're going to do on a Sunday morning. Sunday mornings, we're going to do that course I've mentioned this year. I was going to do on renewing the mind, and in that we get into how your mind works and how thoughts, your mind operates by thoughts, imaginations, and strongholds. So every thought that you have is is is, a, is part of an image that's that's being formed in your mind. And if those thoughts are godly thoughts, if those thoughts are, are positive thoughts, if those thoughts are a good, good end, a good, a good goal, then that will begin to form that in you. And here's the important thing. When you have a positive image, when you have a, 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 a strong hope, no matter what comes against you, that motivates you to get going. See, it's easy to be motivated when everything's going well. It's easy to be motivated when everything you look for begins to just happen immediately and everybody around you loves you and you're prospering and everything's growing. It's easy to be positive then. The challenge is, like the Hebrews were going through, like many people are going through right now, the challenge is when things don't seem to be working. The challenge is when things seem to be going the other direction. And then there are voices that will talk to you. Sometimes they're your own and it may well be Satan trying to take away whatever hope you had and paint in your mind a vision of what's going to happen that's his plan for your life. And then we begin to speak it out. We say, oh, I'm never going to make it. This is never going to end. Life's never going to be the same. You know what you're doing? You're painting an image in your mind. You paint an image in your mind by the words that you speak and the thoughts that you allow in your mouth, out in your mind. And we have not only the ability to control that, we have the responsibility to control that. The Bible tells us, and I think it's First Corinthians 10, to, Second Corinthians 10, to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. We're responsible for monitoring our thoughts to decide what thoughts ought to be sown into our mind. What, what images do you want? Whether you, do you want an image of hope, a picture of hope for your future, or do you want a picture of despair, discouragement, that nothing's ever going to turn out right? In these kinds of times, unfortunately, we see a, an increase in the suicide rate down to young people. I've heard the other day of, a, of, of, a, of an 11th grader in another part of the country, a relative of mine knows it, the 11th grader, 11-year-old committed suicide. The whole life's in front of them. How hopeless can things get when you give up your life at 11 years of age? Teenagers ending their life when it's all before them. Why do they do that? Because they don't see any hope. They don't see anything positive to live for. And of course, there's an enemy trying to destroy them, painting that picture in their mind, which is why we need to help one another by reinforcing that positive image, reinforcing that hope. We have to be proactive at this. If we're just, what will happen is if we're, just, if we're just ignorant of this or we're lazy about this and we just take in whatever comes along, realize you have an enemy out there who's trying to sow into your mind seeds that will produce an image in your mind of an outcome that's not good. And nowadays, that's what most of the information that we're getting through the news and through our media and through social media and all the other information that comes at us that's not controlled by God. But, but I have some good news for you. 
Here's a source of some news. Here's a source of some vision. Here's a source of hope that God has given us. So hope is critical. Hope is critical for us to finish our course with joy. Finish our course. It's a positive imagination of a good outcome in the future. My wife keeps reminding me lately. Oral Roberts, one of his famous sayings is, something good is going to happen to you today. That's setting just an attitude. Rick shared with, with, uh, 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 when we had the testimony night, getting up in the morning saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That sets a positive image for the day. Oh, that's just positive thinking. No, it's biblical thinking. It's godly thinking. Positive thinking is my own idea of what's going to be happening. But when I take what God says and I begin to speak that out, I'm beginning to, I'm beginning to form God's image for my life, God's image for my future, God's image for eternity, begin to form that image in my mind, and that produces godly hope. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Many mornings when I get up, somewhere around five, sometimes earlier than that, one of the first things I have to do is to put my coat on, put my hat on, open Molly's crate, and go out into whatever the weather is outside, cold, rainy, snowy, and I got to go out there at five in the morning before I've had my coffee so that she can do her business. I bless my wife who got the dog. <laughs> now Molly's a joy. And I get out there, and, 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 and it's easy to start feeling sorry for yourself. And I've learned to just look up and say, God, thank you for this day. Thank you that I had a good night's sleep. Thank you that I'm alive today, and thank you that this is a day that you have made, and you are going to walk through this day, not just with me, but in me. It doesn't take long, but just to begin to acknowledge his presence and that he has a future for you. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 29.11. For good and, for an, and not for evil and for an expected end. God has a vision for your life. God has an image of your life. God has a hope for your life. He's formed you with a purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 says that, that you have been created, you've been saved by faith through grace, but, but, but you've been saved under good works that God has ordained before that you walk in them. God has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. The testimony Paul has at the end of his life is, I've run my race, I've finished my course. In other words, there was a race set for him. There was a course set for him. There was a purpose set for his life. And he said, I look back and I know I finished what God had for me to do. His hope, his goal was to finish the course that God had set for his life. So well, that's the Apostle Paul. That's not in the Word just so we can know what Paul did. God has a purpose for each one of your lives. Those of you watching online tonight, God has a purpose for your life that's been ordained before the foundation of the world. There's your hope. Find what it is. It gives you the motive to get up in the morning. We had a speaker here a number of years ago, Jerry Garcia, wonderful evangelist, travels throughout Mexico. 
And he shared this story about somebody he knew, a friend of his, that was older, had retired, and he'd get up in the morning, there was no purpose to his life anymore, and he'd just go out and sit on the porch, and he'd read his Bible and drink his coffee. And one day he realized, wait a minute, I don't have to just sit here. I can do something. So he, he got, I don't know, he got a cup of coffee or something, and he decided to go across the street and just bring it to his neighbor and began to talk to his neighbor, find out what's going on in his neighbor's life. And the next thing you know, he had led that neighbor to the Lord. So the next morning he gets up and said, well, that was good. I wonder what else I can do today. And he just began to look around at opportunities. So he went to the store, and he met somebody there, and he began to minister to them and talk to them and just do things for them. And so when you begin to look at your life, Look at your life. Every day, every moment of your life, God has possibilities out there for you, things for you to do. And, and it may not be a worldwide ministry. It may be just giving hope to somebody, just to bring hope to somebody today. In this world we're in right now, maybe all they needed to do to just pick up and keep on going. And God may be using you. You never know how God wants to use you. There's a purpose for a life that's God-ordained that we can all do no matter how old we are. I read a story about uh, um, a woman who was in a um, nursing home, and she was, I don't know, she was in her 80s in a nursing home, and just she, she was in a wheelchair. She was on the second floor of the nursing home, so that's where she stayed. And uh, the, the gentleman that wrote this book and the story had a, had a ministry and, uh, where he went into prisons. And this lady had written him a letter saying, I hear you're going to be in this area. Uh, would you come see me? And he really didn't want to do that, but he, he decided to go there. And he said, I walked into this, this it, was a, it was not a very big or fancy nursing home, and he said, I walk in there and you could just feel death. It just people are in there just waiting to die. No hope. Their life's over. There's nothing to live for except that they're afraid, too afraid to die. So I walked, went upstairs into this woman's room, we opened the room, and the atmosphere in there was completely different. It was full of light. It was full of life. And there's this old little old lady, shriveled up, sitting in this wheelchair, with her face beaming. And he began to talk to her. He already knew who she was. And she said, I just want to tell you my story. She said, I was here a few years ago, just ready to die, and I was ready to give up. And she said, wait a minute, I can do something. There's something I can do. So she had the idea, I- I'm going to start, I want to write to some prisoners. So she wrote a letter to the warden of a prison, I think, in Alabama. And she said, I told her who she was. I'd like to begin to write letters to some of your prisoners. Would you, okay, and would you send me the information? So by the time this evangelist went to meet her, she was a pen pal every month to over 40 prisoners. Many of them called her mom. She was giving to them, and she couldn't get out of a wheelchair out of the second floor bedroom that she was in. But there was so much life coming out of her because she had a purpose for her life that was beyond herself, and God was using that purpose. Well, if somebody stuck in a nursing home who can't get out of a wheelchair can give something to other people, that certainly we can do that. We can do that. And that hope, that begins to give you a reason for living. It begins, and what happens is when you have that hope, no matter what comes against you, 
no matter what looks the world looks like, your, the hope you have has not come because of the circumstances in the world. Because suddenly COVID-19 and all its variances just dried up overnight and now we've got hope. No, the hope that God wants you to have is a hope that comes from the inside from finding and carrying out a purpose that God has for your life. And that's what this verse, these verses are about. That we not be sluggish, but through patience inherit the promises. Now let's go down to verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying you, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, this is Abraham, he obtained the promise. What that's referring to is God made a covenant promise to Abraham that he would be, Abraham would be the father of many nations. At the time God, we talked about this a few months ago, at the time God said this to Abraham, he was 75 years old. His wife was 65. She was past childbearing age, and he was too, and she had always been barren. So there were three strikes against them even having a child, but God made a promise to them. And we, took, we, we spent a number of weeks walking through the steps of Abraham's faith, and we saw what he went through and how he grew in his faith. He didn't get there overnight. And so what this is talking about is how God had to lead him really through 75 years, or 25 years, to bring him to the place where he could finally believe that God could and would do what he had promised. And so he had to swear to Abraham so that he would be able to receive the blessing. Verse 15. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promises. You know, there's some of us that are praying, many people here praying for, for relatives and loved ones, and, and it can get discouraging because you can pray and pray and pray and you just don't see any change and it doesn't look like there's any possibility of change. There's no little bit of light. There's no little bit of, of hope. There's just, but it, and it's really easy to just say, I guess that's never going to happen. And when we do that, we give up hope that God can ever reach that person. There's a story I've heard and I've read about the great uh, George Mueller, who was a um, wonderful man of God uh, back in, in Bristol, Bristol, England. Um, and he, uh, he formed an orphanage with, that, that would house and feed and, and educate over 2,000 students, and he never asked a dime from anybody. His ministry was founded on, on this belief, that I want to prove to the world that God answers prayer. And so I'm not going to ever ask anybody. I'm not going to tell them what I need. I'm just going to tell God what I need. And over 50 years... He supplied, God supplied everything that, that they needed. Well, this man was a great man of prayer. And he had picked out five of his friends when he first got saved to beginning to pray, begin to pray for them. And one of them got saved fairly soon. Another one got saved. And then, then others, one of them was 20 years before he got saved. But he kept praying for him every day. And then the, by the time he died, there was one that had not gotten saved yet. I don't know, I think it was 30 or 40 years he prayed for these people. Prayed for this man 40-some years. The day of George Mueller's funeral, when they were at the gravesite, this man he'd prayed for came over, kneeled at his casket, 
and gave his life to the Lord. God answers your prayers. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's hard to believe that they're going to change, that they're going to turn around if we don't have hope because there's nothing for our faith to lock into to believe for that to happen. And that's what God needs us. That's what God needs us to do. Okay, let's go down to verse... um, 16. For men indeed swear by the greater and, and an oath for confirmation for them is an end of all dispute. That thus God determining to shore more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, his word, but he confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable things of which is impossible for God to lie. So the God we have our hope in, it's impossible for him to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. So that we may have strong consolation. I looked up that word consolation, and that consolation is the same Greek word that Jesus uses, or used when Jesus says that I've, I have, I've asked the Father and he will send you another helper. That refers to the Holy Spirit. That's why he's sometimes called the comforter. The Greek word actually means somebody called alongside you to help you. So the consolation, the strong consolation, it says we have, is something called alongside of us to hold us steady and to hold us firm. And that is what the purpose of hope is. That is what the purpose of hope is. Let's go, uh, so let's go down to verse, keep going, down to verse 19. This hope, this is what I wanted to get to, this hope we have, what's the hope? It's the promise set before us. The promise set before us that God has an expected end for us. The promise set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you seen any images around here that give you a picture of that? Maybe the flag of Rhode Island? What's the the symbol of Rhode Island? It's an anchor. And what's the motto of a lion? Hope. It's got to come from this verse. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Now let's think about what an anchor does. What is an anchor? (laughs) We had an occasion a number of years ago. My oldest son, Chris, Pastor Chris, uh, and I, he had an idea to, for, for us to buy a boat. And that, what that means is I paid for it. And, and he took care of it, which was a wonderful combination. We got it because I wanted it was something I could do together with him. It was fun. It was expensive, but it was fun. And, and I, we got it all fixed up, and it was an old boat. It was 20 years old. And we're going out on the, in, the, in the Narragansett Bay, and I was not familiar with it, and I was really not trained as a, as a, as a piling boats. And, and we're going out through this channel, and this is a small 19-foot boat. Why do I need to be in a channel? So I decided we got out a little ways. I'm going to just leave the channel 
and take a shortcut. And as I do that, all of a sudden I hear boom, and I hear and he leans over and he says, Dad, I, I think we hit something. And I look over and we're surrounded by rocks about that far below the boat. <laughs> now we have on the boat Jen, his wife, out for the first time. We have my wife in the boat. I don't think either of them were too excited that we brought this boat. And we have their first child, Emma, who is less than a year old, screaming. And now the boat's dead in the water. So what's the first thing we do? And, and, and there was a, the tide was coming in, and the currents are rowing. Is we take the anchor, you tie one end of it, and you throw it over, and you make sure it engages with the bottom of the, of the river. And the, what it does is it holds us steady. Now, we had to do something else. He had to jump over and hold us so we wouldn't go in the rocks. But you throw the anchor over, and what the anchor does is it keeps you in the same place. The anchor is designed in such a way it has a weight to it so that when you throw it over, it's heavy enough to sink into the sand or the mud or whatever is the, the riverbed or the seabed. And then it is shaped in such a way so that when you begin, it begins to pull out, it will, it will lock in and hold you in place. Now, it won't stop you from drifting around because as the wind changes and the currents may change, the boat may shift around, but the anchor keeps it from moving from that place. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's what hope does. With this hope, you may blow around a little bit. You may face different directions. You may go up and down, but you won't leave that spot if you're tied to the anchor. Now, a number of years ago, we had uh, Jack Easterby, who was then the, um, the uh, chaplain to the New England Patriots. He's now in Houston. And he told a story when he went, met his father-in-law father-in-law was a fisherman, and, when, and he took him out boating. He said, I was neither a fisherman nor I was a boater. They get out there to where they're going to they're gonna cast their rods out and fish, and, he, and his father-in-law says, throw the anchor over. So as a good prospective son-in-law, he threw the anchor over. It did not occur to him that he should tie the rope on the other end of the anchor to the boat, so he threw the anchor over, and the rope went right with it. So that anchor has to be tied to the boat, and in order for the anchor to serve its purpose. This hope, this hope, we're going to talk about, we have as an anchor for your soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And they can get moved. Your emotions can get moved. Your mind can get moved. All of those things can get moved. But if you are tied to this hope, this anchor, you will not be moved away from that hope. It's a sure, it's sure and steadfast. And what is that anchor? It enters the presence behind the veil. What's that talking about? Well, I've never, I've taught, I've taught it when I had the school of ministry. We had the school of ministry here. But there's a course I taught in that school of ministry. In fact, I, I wrote a book on it. It's about the tabernacle of Moses. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they had been in Egypt for 430 years. There was no synagogues in Egypt. They weren't able to meet together. And now they're out in the wilderness. 
And God wants them, wants to meet with them. He wants to, to have them have a relationship with them. But he's a holy God, and they're anything but holy. So God calls Moses up on a mountain. This is all in Exodus. And God gives Moses instructions for how to construct this tabernacle, which just means a dwelling place. And there was an outer courtyard that was surrounded by a, a, a wall, but it was a wall made of linen cloth that was draped over posts and poles. And so that if you lived outside that wall, you couldn't see what was in, going on inside, but there was no top on it. And there was a gate there. And, and the, it, only the priests could go inside. And inside there, they performed the ritual sacrifices that were laid out in Exodus and Leviticus. And so uh, inside that outer courtyard, which was open, the floor was dirt, there was an altar called the brazen altar where they burned animals, sacrifices, 24 hours a day. Behind that, there was a, there was a, there was a brass bowl, and that bowl was full of water. It was called the laver. And they would wa- when they finished performing the sacrifices, they would wash their hands. And then there was a, there was a tent that had coverings over it that had two rooms in it. So it was enclosed. And the first room was called the holy place. And inside that room, there was a table on which there was 12 loaves of unleavened bread, called just showbread. There was a candelabra, basically, that was one piece of solid gold beaten into this form. And then there was an altar on which incense was burned. And the priest would come in there, and they would eat this bread, and this, this incense would fill the place, and the only light in there was the light of this candles. And this represented... This represented a degree of fellowship with God because there was a curtain on the other side that, that led the way into the inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies. And in that inner room was the Ark of the Covenant, which the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie was made about, and they got some things right and a lot of things wrong. This was a gold, basically a gold box, and it had in it, it had in it... Um, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. We don't go into what that means. It had in there a pot, a gold pot that had some of the fir- the manna left over, and then it had pieces of the of the ta- of the tablet on which God had written the Ten Commandments. That when Moses got angry because the people sinned and threw it down and broke it, he told them to take pieces of that, and those were put in there. The top of it was covered by a covering called the mercy seat, which was solid gold. And it had on either side angels leaning over. All this was made out of solid gold, beaten hand, and they were wing with their wings were touching each other. And in this room, the presence of God, the physical, tangible presence of God, called the Shekinah glory, dwelt in this room between those angels leaning over. So this room was only lit up by the glory of God in that room. I can't describe the rest of it, what was going on in this room. This room could only be entered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement after going through all the rituals he had to go through. So, to come back to this, the veil that referring to here is the veil of that tabernacle, the veil, the curtain, that kept everybody out of the actual presence of God except the high priest who could go in there one day a year having performed the right sacrifices. But if you go into Hebrews further, what you find out is that is just a, sy- a symbol 
or a type, the Bible calls it, uh, of the true tabernacle, which is the heaven, the presence of God. And so the veil represented what separates a holy God from us, and us from a holy God. And so remember when Jesus was crucified? I think it's in Matthew's account. It said the veil of the temple, because the temple was a temple that Solomon built that's based on this model, basically, but much grander. And it says when Christ died, when the price was paid, that veil, which archaeologists believe was like six inches thick, was torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. So that signifies to me that that tearing was done supernaturally because no man ripped it from the bottom It was because it was huge, ripped it from the top. And when that veil was ripped open, that removed anything that separated us from God's presence. That's what he's talking about here. So the hope we have is our high priest has gone into the actual presence of God carrying his blood that paid for our sins and by opening that veil the way Hebrews 10 talks about that way has been opened up so we can have bold and confident access so what he's talking about here is the hope we have is our brother Christ our savior whom we've been joined to whom we are one with has gone before us as a forerunner well let's just keep going so he's already there having made a way for... Remember he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So when I come, I'm going to come and get you. This was the place. And he's going to prepare a place for you and a place for me. So part of our perspective has to be whatever we face in this world, we talked about this Sunday, it's only temporary. Uh, one of the things I've started saying even in our, in, in our own life at home or something like you know, we get upset about something like this. That's really not eternal. So I'm not going to get that worked up about it. It's the eternal things we need to keep our focus on. Let's, let's keep going. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul. He's gone forward. Uh, verse 20, I don't think I told... Yeah, there it is. We're the forerunner. That word forerunner in Greek literally means your representative who's gone there for you. Where the forerunner has entered in, even Jesus having become high priest, he's the real high priest. And he's gone in there, he didn't go in there because so he could get into God's presence, he started out in God's presence. He went in there to get into God's presence so you and I can get into God's presence. And so Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 says, we therefore, we can enter by boldness into this presence of God by a new and living way. And the word boldness means you don't have to hold anything back. You don't have to present yourself a certain way. You can just be free and open because you're going to the presence of somebody who not has loved you, but he's paid the way for you to come with his own blood. I was thinking today as, we were, as I was meditating on this, it's kind of like um, if... Uh, um, we were watching something the other day. I, don't know. I, I enjoy mysteries. I like mystery books. I like mystery. I don't read them a lot, but I, I enjoy them. We were watching some mystery movie, and, and, and Anita was getting anxious because she really gets into them. She was getting anxious, and, and, I, and it was one that really engaged us 
And, and I'm trying to tell, but, but honey, it's okay. I've seen this before. I know how it ends. And because I know how it ends, I'm not going to get that anxious about it. I've got news for you. I know how it ends. I read the back of the book. I know how it ends. When you know how it ends, whatever you've got to go through isn't all that important as long as you keep your eyes on where it all ends. And that's what we looked at Sunday when Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are temporary. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen, what's not seen? God's hope for you in heaven. God's hope for you in his presence. The things that are not seen are eternal. Are eternal. So hope comes. Hope helps us to have this right and godly perspective. It helps us to hold on. It helps us to have confidence. Let's go to Hebrews 10 now, verse 35. This was all written to do just what we're talking about tonight. To help them be strong by restoring or challenging them or calling them to renew their hope. He's just gone through some things, the things we just talked about. He says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Don't throw your confidence away. Satan is always after your confidence. He'll get, you get up in the morning and he'll, he can talk, start talking to you. So, well, you know, you didn't do too well yesterday. Or look what you're facing today. Or, or you, you, you look at the news and it looks overwhelming. You say, what chance do you have? You're going to lose your job. You're going to get sick. Somebody's going to die. All these things. He begins to paint this picture for you again. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't throw away your confidence. That means he can't steal it. He has no power over you. Colossians 1.13 says, you've been delivered from the dominion of darkness, his domain, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Satan does not have authority over you, but he's a deceiver. He's a tempter, and he's very subtle, and he's very wise in terms of doing this. He's not wise. He's very crafty in terms of how he does this. What he's trying to do is get you to throw away your confidence. One of the ways he does it is try to get you to get your confidence in yourself. Well, here I go. I failed again. I made this vow to God. I made this promise to God, and there I've slipped again. I've stopped. I was going to pray every day, and I failed. I didn't pray this week. I didn't do this. Notice who that's looking at. It's you. It's you. The devil will talk to you about you all day long if you'll listen to him. And he'll never tell you good things. He'll beat you down and tell you you're a failure. Tell you you're not going to make it. Tell you. Point out things that may be true about you, but God's not trusting in you. He wants you to have your trust in him. Do not cast away your confidence. Why? It has a great reward. Keep going. For you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. 
So much of this section of the book of Hebrews is about this. In fact, chapter 11, which is the Hall of Fame of Faith, is really, this is the message of it, is we have to walk by faith and not by sight so that we won't throw away our confidence, so that we won't give up. You have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Keep going. For a little while, he is coming, will come and will not tear. Now stop there. When, he, when this was written, it was 2,000 years ago. His coming is a lot sooner now than it was then. It may be this year. We don't know. So we've got to learn to live our lives as if it's tomorrow, but also be prepared to live as if he's not coming back during our lifetime. So we finish what we're here to do. For yet a little while, he is coming. Go back. And he will not tarry. He will come. Verse 38. Keep going. Now the just shall live by faith. What that's saying is those who have made, been made, were saved by faith, were made righteous by faith, but were also to live by faith. It was by faith that we were saved, but then we don't put our faith aside. We're supposed to live by faith. Faith in these, ultimately, in these promises that God has a future for us. God has a hope for us. God has a, a destination for us. And it's glorious and it's wonderful. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. We don't draw back. Satan's after us to draw back. And the method that he uses to do that is discouragement. And discouragement ultimately has at its root something about you. You're not going to do this. You're not going to make it. You're not enough. You're not this. Da 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 If he can get you to get your eyes on you, he's got you already headed in the wrong direction. And we're human. We're, we're, we fall into that trap regularly but if you know, it's, I, I was, I've taught this before. It's been a while. But I, my wife was asking me this the other day. We were, um, when, we were, when Tony Cook was here and Lisa, uh, we took them to Boston. We took them to the Faneuil Hall. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I used to work across the street from it when I was a lawyer. And I watched them. I, so we're in there, and it's a Saturday, and it's a beautiful day, and it is packed. And so the very first thing I do when I get in there as I take my wallet out of my back pocket and I put my wallet in my front pocket and I put my hand in my front pocket and I have a hold on my wallet and I turn to say something to Tony, you might want and you've already done the same thing. When we were in England a few years ago, there were places where they have signs up. Beware pickpockets frequent this place. Now I'm saying that for this. Because when I'm in those areas, I know what a pickpocket's after. But a pickpocket never comes up and puts his hand in your back pocket and pulls your wallet out because he knows you'd notice that or you'd feel that. So what a pickpocket does, and sometimes they work in tandem, he'll do something to brush you, to distract you, and get your attention away so your focus, the issue to you, is what you see happening over here because while your attention overs are there, he goes for what he's really after. 
But if you know what he's really after, you won't pay attention to all the other distractions because you know he's after your wallet. And so you'll put your hand on your wallet in your pocket or ladies, you'll put your purse over here and have your arm over it. So when you know what he's after, you won't be distracted by those things that are designed to divert your attention from what he's really after. So when issues come at you, when thoughts come at you that you're not going to make it, when thoughts come at you that you're, you're weak, you're a failure, you've not done this right, you've not been a good Christian, all these things, those are like a pickpocket diverting your attention from what he's really after. What he's really after is to get your eyes off of Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. For this is not about how good a Christian you are or I am. This is about how gracious and kind and wonderful and loving he is. A phrase I heard a number of years ago, and it just means a lot to me, is that when we get to heaven, we're not trophies of how good a Christian we are. We're trophies of how gracious God has been with us. And so that's the issue. He's trying to get you discouraged about yourself. So we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving, believe to the saving of the soul. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, and we'll finish here. Paul has just, has just finished talking about this faith of Abraham that we spent so many weeks studying, the faith of Abraham that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And now he's going to talk about because we have this faith, because we've been saved by faith and not by our works, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let's just think about that for a minute. You have peace with God. You may not feel like you've got peace inside of you now, but God's not angry at you. God's not angry at you. God's not angry at you. From God's side, he's at peace with you because he paid for your sin. Therefore, having peace with God. This is why peace is part of the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 because that armor is for the purpose of spiritual warfare. And one of the things you need to know is God's not angry at you. Because he says we're feet shod with the gospel of peace. And when I've taught that before, when you look at the Roman soldiers' shoes that he wore, they had cleats in them, like the football players do. Why? So when they were engaged in hand-to-hand combat, their feet would not slip out from underneath them. And when you lose your peace, the very foundation you're standing on is slipping out underneath you. That's why Satan tries to steal your peace. But our peace... Is, is always in God's love, God's grace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep going. Through whom, here we go, we also have access by faith into this grace. Through Christ and faith in him, we have access into this amazing grace that God has poured out upon us into which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Stay there a second. We rejoice in the what? The hope of the glory of God. That's the revealing of his glory, being in the presence of his glory. Our hope, that's the anchor of our soul, is ultimately what happens when we leave this life. What's the worst thing that can happen to you here? You die. You die. I've known several people that have died and come back to life. And the one thing they have in common is they have no fear. 
and they have no fear. Why? Because they've seen the other side. They've seen what it's like on the other side. And this side is, 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 is nothing compared to that. So the worst thing that can happen to you is you die. You're going to do it anyway. That you die. Now, we don't want you dying early. That you die. And when you die, you're in God's presence. Immediately in God's presence. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only that, but we also glory in, oh, tribulations. We glory in trouble. Tribulations means trouble. Why? That's not natural. But see, Paul learned to think differently. Knowing something, that tribulation produces perseverance or endurance. Now, trouble doesn't produce that automatically any more than the barbells in my basement produce muscle. The barbells in the basement are an opportunity to exercise energy resisting them. So if I, when I lie down on that bench and pick those barbells up, there's a weight pressing down against me. But if I exercise my resistance against that weight and I'll push back with what I do have against that weight, what will eventually happen is I will begin to develop a strength by resisting that pressure instead of giving into that pressure. I'll begin to develop strength, and then I can actually handle more weights and more pressure and endure. And yet while I'm doing that, I'm building up physical strength for endurance. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I glory in tribulations because I understand they're an opportunity. Because I know that tribulation, when I resist it, when I stand firm in it, when I hold on to my hope, produces perseverance. Next verse. And perseverance, if I continue in it, produces character. And that word actually means proven or tested character. When God begins to give you responsibilities... God will not give you responsibilities beyond the character in you that he's tested. I don't have time to tell you the story of what God took me through. But it was a period of years to produce things in me before he could put me in this position. Because he knew things that I would face in this position. So they had to be tested in me. Just like they test airplanes before they put them out there. They test anything, any tools. That's one of, the, the, uh, of a company that produces things. They'll have a, a quality assurance department to test the product, to make sure they're producing things because they're sending out with their reputation on them. Proven character, and proven character produces what we're talking about tonight, hope. Proven character produces hope. Now we know that hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Other verses explain that by saying the Spirit of God in us is, is proof of God's love for us. And the hope that we have is in how much God loves us. Romans 8 ends with Paul extolling that. He said, For I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come or any created thing, whatever comes against me, shall ever separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. He begins by saying, I am persuaded. He didn't write those words from an exalted office in a theological seminary. He wrote those words from jail, having been put in jail for preaching the gospel. And in the middle of that pit, in the middle of that pit, in the middle of that persecution, Paul writes these words, I'm persuaded. I am persuaded for all that I've been through. That no matter what happens in the world around me or comes against me, it cannot separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're together going through challenging and difficult times. And each of us is experiencing it in in different ways, the way it, it strikes us, the way it comes at us, but together we are. It's a time, Father, when there are many days when it looks like this world is offering no hope. But our hope has never been in this world. It's never been in the things of this world. It's never been in the programs of this world. It's never been in the governments of this world. It's never been in the institutions of this world. But our hope, our hope that's the anchor for our soul can only come from you and the purposes and plans that you have for our lives. And so tonight I pray for everyone that's here and watching online and those that may watch hereafter. Father, that you lift their eyes off of where they are right now. Help us to lift our eyes off of our life and what's wrong and what's going not the way we want and whatever it is, the unknown, the questions, to lift our eyes to look at your face to see you shining smiling down upon us telling us that we're precious in your sight for God so loved us that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believed in him would never perish never perish but would have everlasting life You are the God of all hope. So I pray now, Father, for everyone here online or will watch later on, that you will renew their hope, you will instill hope, you will expand their hope, that they can begin to spread that hope to others and that we can become a beacon of hope in a world that provides very little hope. Pray right now, Father, for anyone that's watching this program or is here that's never received Christ, that you would give them that hope that tonight they can enter into your kingdom and into your family. And Father, we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're watching online or maybe you're here tonight and you've never entered into God's kingdom, you may have been, a Christian, may have been raised in a Christian church.